Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. The court is back after their mid-winter hiatus, and we're back too. The next several weeks and months will be a sprint to the finish of the court's term. We're waiting on decisions in several high-profile cases, all while the court is still accepting new cases and hearing oral arguments in its current cases. On the news front, I unfortunately have some very sad news to announce. On January 27th, Judge Marty Feldman of the Eastern District of Louisiana passed away. Longtime listeners may remember Judge Feldman is the first judge that I ever interviewed when I joined the show. In addition to interviewing him, I had the privilege of meeting him a few times in person, and he was a fascinating, hilarious, and brilliant man. We will miss him. Absolutely. Our hearts go out to his friends, family, and his many law clerks. And GC, I remember we were talking to him at an event shortly before he passed away, and he had everyone in stitches uh, with his great storytelling <laughs> ability. He certainly did. Now, you could hear some of those great stories uh, from when I interviewed him, uh, but for some of the stories which didn't make it onto the episode, uh, I would encourage you to track down some of his old law clerks who I'm sure have many of those. Now, of course, we have to discuss Justice Breyer's retirement and Biden's nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Zach, give me a short rundown. What do you make of all of that? I noticed you prefaced that with a short rundown. Uh, <laughs> Correct. <laughs> because I have many thoughts. Uh, but look, I think it's unfortunate that this entire process has the, uh, the attempts to bully Justice Breyer into retirement hanging over it. But I do think that so far, Mitch McConnell is striking the right tone. No one wants to see a repeat of the character assassination that occurred during Brett Kavanaugh's hearings. And many of the senators involved in that debacle should still be ashamed of themselves. So I appreciate that Mitch McConnell is making clear the focus of these hearings will be on Kintanji Brown-Jackson's legal views and judicial philosophy. And so far, as a nominee to the lower federal courts, she's avoided giving firm answers about her judicial philosophy. So I suspect there's a lot of room for information to come out there during the questioning, and that based on her answers, there will be many problematic areas that come out from her answers that will give Republican senators plenty of grounds to oppose her nomination on the merits of those views. In a few weeks, we'll have a special episode devoted to discussing Judge Jackson's nomination in greater detail. But in the meantime, let's get back to the regular goings-on of the Supreme Court. Starting with orders, the court granted certiorari in Biden versus Texas, which will decide whether immigration law requires the Biden administration to continue implementing the migrant protection protocols, more commonly called the Remain in Mexico policy. As you may recall, the lower courts held that the Biden administration violated the Administrative Procedure Act when it attempted to end Remain in Mexico. Next up, the court agreed to hear 303 Creative v. Elinus. This is a case with major religious liberty implications, although I think the issue the court agreed to hear is technically a free speech one, but essentially the court's being asked to decide whether someone who designs websites can refuse to design websites for same-sex weddings because of their religious opposition to those, or whether the state can compel them to exercise their craft, website design, uh, to support something that they disagree with. 
The court also agreed to hear Haland versus Brackeen, a challenge to the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. That law sets the standards for when Native American children can be removed from their families and placed in foster care and establishes a controversial preference that those children should be placed in foster homes run by other Native Americans. It also imposes a number of requirements on states who argue that the law therefore violates the Tenth Amendment, which generally prohibits the federal government from forcing the states to enforce federal laws. Next up, we had an order in Merrill v. Milligan. This was a short, unsigned 5-4 to order where the court stayed a three-judge district court's preliminary injunction against Alabama's redistricting plan. The injunction would have required Alabama to redraw its maps only weeks before the primary elections. Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Justice Alito, concurred and wrote separately to emphasize that this wasn't a decision on the merits. It simply preserved stability before the election. The Chief Justice dissented on the grounds that, in his view, the panel properly applied prior precedent, but he explained that he might be willing to reconsider those precedents. Justice Kagan, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, dissented, criticizing the majority's opinion as if it had been a decision on the merits. Zach, were there any denials worth noting this week? There are. There are two denials that are worth briefly mentioning, and both involve cases about the appropriate role government can play in second-guessing internal governance decisions of religious organizations. First is trustees of the New Life in Christ Church v. the City of Fredericksburg, Virginia. There, the city denied the church a tax exemption applicable to a ministerial residence because it claimed that the individuals living there did not qualify as ministers even though the church labeled them as such and they performed many traditional ministerial duties. Justice Gorsuch dissented from the denial of certiorari, highlighting the absurdity of the city's position that it knew better than the church who qualified as a minister under the church's religious beliefs. Next, the court declined to hear the case of Gordon College v. Margaret DeWeese Boyd. The issue here was the narrow interpretation that the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts had given to the ministerial exception in employment disputes involving religious institutions. Justice Samuel Alito, joined by Justices Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, issued a short statement saying that he was troubled by the narrow view of the exception that the Massachusetts court had taken, and that while he agreed with not hearing the case right now because of procedural issues, if it came back before the court later, it might be an appropriate vehicle to clarify the scope of this ministerial exception. Now, the court, of course, heard oral arguments these last two weeks, but just given the amount of stuff we have to cover this week, we're going to skip them and discuss those when they come out as opinions. So speaking of opinions, GC, did we get any good ones this week? We got a whole bunch. I'll start with Unicolors versus H&M. In a 6-3 to three opinion written by Justice Breyer, the court held that a safe harbor provision in the copyright laws excuses an inaccuracy in a copyright registration if that error stems from a lack of factual or legal knowledge. Here, Unicolors registered a copyright but made a mistake about one of the legal requirements for it. When it was later sued for infringement of a similar copyright by H&M, Unicolors used the copyright safe harbor as a defense. The safe harbor says that a copyright is not invalid if its registration includes an error, provided the applicant did not have knowledge of the inaccuracy. Now, H&M argued that the safe harbor only applies to factual, not legal, errors, but the Supreme Court disagreed because nothing in the text drew a distinction between factual and legal mistakes. 
Justice Thomas, joined by Justices Alito in full and Gorsuch in part, dissented, arguing that the case should have been dismissed because Unicolors abandoned the actual question that the court took up and raised novel legal questions for the first time before the Supreme Court. Next up, we have an opinion in the United States versus Zubeda. This was a 7-2 decision with a fractured set of opinions where the court held that the state secrets privilege applies to the existence, or non-existence, of a CIA facility in Poland, and that therefore Mr. Zubeda was not entitled to discover information about it. Justice Breyer issued an opinion that was joined in full by Chief Justice Roberts and joined in various parts by everyone except Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor. Here's the background. Zubeda is currently a detainee at Guantanamo Bay and is believed to be a senior al-Qaeda leader with knowledge about post-9-11 terrorist attacks against the United States. He claims that in 2002 to 2003, he was held at a secret CIA facility in Poland and subjected to enhanced interrogation techniques by CIA contractors who were Polish. He filed a lawsuit in Poland seeking to hold those Polish nationals responsible. In aid of his Polish lawsuit, he filed a discovery action in a U.S. court to get information about his detention in Poland. The government, the U.S. government, objected on the grounds that the state secrets privilege protected the information that he sought. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals permitted limited discovery to go forward, but the Supreme Court reversed in this decision. The various opinions reflect the different ways of analyzing the state secrets privilege. The baseline proposition is that the state secrets privilege permits the government to prevent disclosure of information when that disclosure would harm national security interests. From that proposition, Justice Breyer concluded, based on a declaration from the CIA director, that the privilege applied because any response to Zabeda's discovery request would confirm or deny whether Poland was cooperating with the CIA which would harm national security interests by discouraging other nations from cooperating with our government. Zubeda argued that some of the information he sought, like the existence of the Polish facility, had become public knowledge, and so the state secrets privilege couldn't apply, but Breyer said that even information that has become public may still fall within the scope of the privilege. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito, concurred in part on the grounds that Zubeda's discovery request should be dismissed without considering the state secret's privilege because he hadn't made the threshold, quote, strong showing that the information was necessary. Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Justice Barrett, concurred in part to say that once a court determines that information falls within the privilege, even the most compelling necessity cannot overcome the privilege. Justice Kagan concurred in part and dissented in part, she would have remanded the case for further proceedings on the grounds that what Zubeda really wants is information about what happened to him, not where it happened, and that the former is no longer classified. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Sotomayor, dissented, arguing that because it is now public knowledge that the CIA had a facility in Poland, it could not damage national security for the CIA to now acknowledge it in response to Zubeda's requests. That wasn't all the court had to say about the state secrets privilege this week. In FBI versus Fizaga, a unanimous decision by Justice Alito, the court reversed the Ninth Circuit and held that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, commonly called FISA, does not displace the state secrets privilege. The case was a putative class action brought against the FBI, alleging that it had illegally spied on members of Muslim communities in California. 
The district court dismissed the complaint on the grounds that the state secrets privilege applied, but the Ninth Circuit reversed, holding that Congress intended FISA to displace the privilege. Curious, said the Supreme Court, because FISA makes no mention whatsoever of the state secrets privilege, which sort of undermines the claim that Congress intended FISA to displace it. What's more, FISA and the state secret privilege don't clash at all. Most of what FISA does has nothing at all to do with the state secrets privilege. So the Supreme Court reversed the Ninth Circuit. Next up is the United States v. Zarnayev. This is big news because this is the Boston Marathon bomber case. And in a 6-3 opinion by Justice Thomas, which was joined by the Chief and Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, the court held that the First Circuit improperly vacated Zarnayev's death sentence. You may recall that Zarnayev was the younger of the two brothers who perpetrated the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. During jury selection, the judge declined to ask prospective jurors to list facts about the case that they may have heard from the media or elsewhere because the question was, quote, unfocused and unguided. Instead, the judge focused on identifying and eliminating jurors with potential bias. The jury eventually convicted Zarnayev of 30 crimes, including 17 capital offenses. At sentencing, Zarnayev argued that he was essentially pressured into this act by his brother and that he wanted to introduce evidence of previous murders allegedly committed by his brother. The judge excluded that evidence as lacking probative value and is likely to confuse because all potential witnesses to those murders were dead. Zarnayev was sentenced to death, but the First Circuit vacated the sentence, reasoning that the district court abused its discretion at jury selection and its sentencing. The Supreme Court reversed on the grounds that the trial judge's decisions were well within the broad discretion given to trial judges. Justice Barrett, joined by Justice Gorsuch, concurred, saying that she doubted that the circuit courts have the supervisory power over district courts that the First Circuit here claimed. Justice Breyer, joined in part by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, dissented, arguing that the district court should have allowed Zarnayev to introduce the evidence that his brother allegedly committed previous murders because it might have changed a juror's mind. Last up, we had Cameron versus EMW Women's Surgical Center. This was an 8-to-1 decision by Justice Alito, where the court held that the Kentucky Attorney General could intervene to defend the state's law forbidding what are called dilation and evacuation abortions. EMW Women's Surgical Center had challenged the law as unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and sued the Attorney General and the Secretary for Health and Family Services. Now, while the case was proceeding, EMW entered into an agreement with the Attorney General to dismiss the AG from the case without prejudice, and that agreement provided that the Attorney General reserved all rights, claims, and defenses arising out of the suit and would be bound by any final judgment. The case then proceeded against the Secretary, and the District Court eventually ruled that the law was unconstitutional. While that case was on appeal to the Sixth Circuit, Kentucky elected a new Attorney General and a new Governor, who appointed a new Secretary for Health and Family Services. The Sixth Circuit then affirmed the district court's ruling, and the secretary announced that he would not seek further review. At that point, the attorney general, who had been acting as the lawyer for the secretary, moved to withdraw as the secretary's lawyer and then intervene on behalf of the state to defend the law further. EMW opposed the motion on the ground that a party that will be bound by a judgment has to file a notice of appeal within the applicable time limit and can't intervene later. The Supreme Court rejected this argument because EMW couldn't support it with a citation to anything, and regardless, a categorical rule like that was not appropriate given a state's strong interest in defending its laws. 
Justice Thomas concurred, noting that the rules of appellate procedure permit only parties to file notice of appeal, and that at the time of the appeal, the AG was not a party. Justice Kagan, joined by Justice Breyer, concurred in the judgment, saying that the Attorney General should have been permitted to intervene, but finding it unnecessary to discuss the constitutional arguments in favor of the state's interest. Justice Sotomayor dissented on her own because, in her view, the decision would allow government officials to evade the consequences of litigation decisions made by predecessors of different political parties. Next up, we have our interview for this week with Steve Engel. We're pleased to be joined today by Steve Engel, the former head of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel and a current partner at Decker LLP. Steve, welcome to the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Now, before we dive into your legal career, Steve, uh, I'd like to ask a background question of our guests. What made you want to be a lawyer? No, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is I've always been interested in, in history. I've always been interested in, in government uh, and uh, you know, I hope that I'd have a, an opportunity to do public service as part of my career, uh, and that plus uh, writing and arguing, uh, which again are things I think I was always doing when I was young. You know, led me towards uh, law school first, and, and ultimately being a lawyer. Great. Now, I know you attended Harvard for your undergraduate studies, and I saw that afterwards you attended the University of Cambridge as a Knox Fellow and earned a graduate degree there. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Uh, sure. No, I think that there, you know, there are a number of fellowships that provide for uh, fun graduate study in England, and I, you know, I was lucky enough to get one of them when I was uh, at college. And so I went to Cambridge University, and I did a, a, an MPhil in historical studies. Uh, and then when I went there, I thought, you know, that I would research uh, the relationships between the United States and the United Kingdom. And so I, I wound up doing uh, a master's uh, on federalist foreign policy, actually. So it was basically looking at the ideological origins, the way in which folks uh, in the 1790s uh, in the Federalist Party kind of viewed uh, the United States, its future, and then its relations with, with England. So Wow. Very interesting. Now, after your time in England, I saw you came back home and you attended Yale Law School. Uh, could you tell us about your experiences in uh, law school? Sure. I mean, I think Yale Yale is a is a great community. It's a small law school, so because of that, uh, people have the opportunity to pursue many different paths while there. And so, it's not just a matter of moot court or the law review or uh, you know or, or, or working on papers, being research assistants. You actually have the opportunity where you can do you know all of those things. And so, I really enjoyed the community there. I enjoyed my my colleagues while I was there. So. Excellent. Now, did you serve as a research assistant while you were at Yale? Um, I did. I did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, I saw where you uh, participated in a number of extracurriculars, moot court, law review, and I saw where you uh, – it looks like you did very well <laughs> in all of those activities. Uh, I saw where you won the uh, Benjamin Cardozo Prize for the best moot court brief and the Israel H. Perez Prize uh, for the most outstanding note in the Yale Law Journal. Uh, so I was going to ask, what was your uh, what was your brief about and what was your note about? Well, well the brief, I think we, we were we were assigned the Dickerson case, which was a challenge to uh, Miranda's foundations. And so uh, I think I forget now, I think I was on the side of the government defending against that challenge, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, although it could have been the other one. But in any event, I mean, so that was, you know, I had the opportunity to brief and argue U.S. versus Dickerson. My note looked at uh, the Supreme Court decision in the city of Bernie versus Flores, which was a decision that basically said the Religious Freedom Restoration Act 
uh, was unconstitutional as applied to state agencies. And the Supreme Court basically said, look, we, uh, in Employment Division versus Smith, had said that there is no uh, free exercise uh, exemption uh, to laws of general applicability. Uh, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act tried to kind of restore that by providing that kind of exception. Right. And uh, and what I did is I looked back, you know, at the history of the drafting of the 14th Amendment, try to come up with what, what did Congress uh, and, and the states which ratified the 14th Amendment, how did they understand the scope of the 14th Amendment? And my conclusion was that they very much thought that Congress, uh, under its Section 5 enforcement authority, would have the right uh, to secure the liberties protected by the Bill of Rights and the like. Uh, in connection with there, and actually, uh, Professor McConnell had written, you know, on that subject as well. And so, uh, you know, my note focused on that suggested the court in City of Bernie versus Flores, uh, you know, got it wrong, uh, actually. Uh, and uh, you know, and so it was a, it was it was an interesting piece. Well, it sounds very interesting. And uh, so, before you joined us today, I looked up your your note on Westlaw to see uh, how many times it's been cited. I was going to ask, uh, do you know how many times it's uh, been cited, Steve? Uh, I, I don't. Uh, well, it's actually been cited uh, sixty two times, which sure. is uh, based on what I've seen is a, a pretty good citation record yeah. for a student note. So, yeah. well, uh, nice, nice to hear. Glad somebody read it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, now, after you graduated from Yale, I know you clerked for a federal appellate judge, and then ultimately for Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Uh, what was your experience like, clerk? Well, I mean, it's, it's it's a tremendous privilege to clerk at the Supreme Court. I mean, folks are coming out of you know recent law school grads essentially and have the opportunity to be uh, you know at one of the great uh, American institutions, which you know of course is run by nine nine individuals, uh, all of whom are uh, experienced uh, and highly skilled lawyers. So it's such a great mentorship uh, opportunity for law clerks to have that privilege. And, you know, I was lucky enough to, uh, to clerk for Justice Kennedy, who, you know, incredibly gracious and decent man who very much considers uh, himself a teacher to his law clerks mm -hmm. and provided a real uh, opportunity for face-to-face -face interaction and, you know, discussion and debate over, you know, the, the frequently interesting and, and always difficult cases that come before the Supreme Court. Do you have any special memories from your time clerking with Justice Kennedy? Well, the you know, I think that the – I mean, I have plenty of, you know, uh, personal memories. But I think, you know, from the uh, standpoint of general interests, what was particularly interesting about our term was it was actually 9-11. Uh, oh, wow. um, and so uh, we, we started by facing a situation of actually, you know, we were in the building when, uh, you know, when the towers were hit. Uh, and so that was pretty – uh, extraordinary and crazy time. We, we managed to bring out a television to, to sort of watch, you know, and when we heard about what happened, and then uh, slowly uh, the justices were were, were asked to, to vacate uh, to a safe location, and then ultimately they cleared the building for the rest of us because uh, the plane in, in Pennsylvania was still uh, still in the air and purported to be, you know, headed towards, towards the capital region. So, um, you know, obviously that was an extraordinary time for everyone in this country, but, um, you know, that was a quite a moment. We then, in, in, in that context, actually had an anthrax scare shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. which actually drove the Supreme Court to the D.C. Circuit. Uh, you know, and it was a pretty extraordinary uh, situation. The court heard all oral argument there. And there's actually in the conference uh, room of the, the D.C. Circuit ceremonial conference, um, they actually have a, a plaque uh, commemorating uh, the Supreme Court having sat there and deliberated there uh, during this period. So, wow. you know, it was an extraordinary time for the, the country. But, you know, those are some of the historical events that we, we dealt with while we were at the court. Wow. Now, how long did the court uh, take up residence at the D.C. Circuit? 
I think it was, it was basically for a sitting. I think it was okay. for a few weeks. I mean, they, there was this anthrax scare where anthrax was sent to a variety of people, both, you know, on the Hill and, and, right. uh, and, and the like. And because of it, uh, they needed to clear out the, the building. Uh, you know, we were all given, uh, you know, as a, you know, antibiotics as a, uh, you know, as a precaution, uh, and they, they basically cleared the building for a couple of weeks. So, wow. Now, does Justice Kennedy, does he have any traditions with his clerks uh, that, that you former clerks maintain? Um, well, I mean, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I know that the justice enjoyed, uh, enjoys spending time with his clerks. And so, you know, we would have, you know, regular lunches, uh, you know, in, in his chambers around the conference table, often where we would talk about work or we would talk about history or literature. The justice has a lot of different interests. Uh, and, you know, it's been a privilege to keep in touch with him over the years. He also calls his clerks back for, for reunions on regular occasions. Now, I want to talk about your time at the Department of Justice. I know you've done two different stints in the Office of Legal Counsel, and we actually had Chuck Cooper on recently to uh, talk a little bit about the office and his experience there. But would you mind reminding our listeners about the role of the Office of Legal Counsel uh, within DOJ and within the federal government? Sure. When the Office of the Attorney General was created, uh, actually, at the, at the first Congress, uh, the Attorney General was given two functions, one of which was to represent the United States in front of the Supreme Court, uh, and the other was to advise uh, the executive branch, the president, departments, and agencies on questions of law. The Attorney General's advising function over time has been delegated to the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel. And so the head of OLC uh, serves as kind of a chief legal advisor to the executive branch, kind of a general counsel to the Attorney General, and you know, and someone who's, who's available to assist the White House counsel in advising the president in uh, in the execution of his, uh, you know, constitutional functions and, and statutory functions as well. And so uh, the office is a, has about 25 lawyers and they're devoted to advising on, you know, on the separation of powers uh, as well as on the, you know, uh, resolving within the executive branch kind of difficult questions of constitutional and statutory interpretation. And I know the office of OLC issues opinions on different issues. What kind of weight do those opinions carry within the executive branch? Well, so the the opinions, uh, OLC's formal opinions, represent kind of the authoritative legal views of uh, of the executive branch. I mean, the head of OLC is subject to being reversed by the attorney general or by you know, and he by the president, uh, of course. But but the opinions otherwise are, are seem to be binding within the executive branch. They absolutely don't speak to. Uh, you know, other branches of government, notably the judiciary, but they represent the executive branch's point of view on kind of what the law is. Now, I know during your first stint in OLC in the George W. Bush administration, you served as a deputy assistant attorney general. And then in the Trump administration, you served as the assistant attorney general, uh, the head of the office of OLC. And so I was wondering, could you compare those two different roles and how those experiences differed uh, for us? Yeah, I mean the the assistant attorney general is is fortunate enough to be uh, to have the assistance of, uh, of four or five deputies uh, during his uh, during his tenure, as well as you know, a, 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 you know eighteen or so other attorneys in the office, and um, you know the the quality of those folks have been really quite good, which certainly makes it easier to be the assistant attorney general and makes the assistant attorney general look good. I mean, so as a deputy. You know, I was there to assist, and I, you know, I, I signed some opinions on behalf of the office. I advised the head of the office as, as well. You know, I think I think the real the real difference is that when you're the assistant attorney general, you are you're, you're the final decision maker for the office, 
And so a deputy can provide a recommendation about which way to go, how we should resolve a contested legal issue, uh, but the AAG basically has, has to make the decision. So, you know, that, that's a difference, a difference in leadership uh, in the office rather than assisting in, in the leadership of the office. But, you know, I think my time as a deputy in the Bush administration was marked, I think, to some degree by, you know, a number of legal issues related to the war on terror. You know, those were kind of the issues of the day, and uh, we were still uh, hashing out uh, the relationship between the Congress and the courts and uh, and the executive branch when it came to that kind of non-traditional conflict with a non-state actor uh, and the like. And so we dealt with a lot of that in, in 2006, 2007, 2008. By the time I returned to the office, a lot of those issues had really kind of been – they'd been kind of resolved, uh, at least, you know, in the United States, that there was a, a bipartisan consensus about how those things would kind of work out. And so, you know, the, the issues of the last few years, while some involved national security, have been sort of other issues, you know, uh, and, and the like. Sure. Now, just uh, one more question on how the office is organized. Does each deputy carry a different port subject matter portfolio? Mm -hmm. Is it uh, organized by certain departments? Or how are the, the deputies within the office uh -huh. organized? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that depends. I mean, there are certain there are certain functions that the office provides in, in the course of providing advice uh, that uh, sometimes certain deputies will have the point on those questions. I mean, they uh, every executive order issued by the president must be reviewed and approved by OLC for form and legality. And so there tends to be a, a deputy who has that order to practice in his or her portfolio. OLC also uh, is responsible for providing constitutional comments to pending legislation called bill comments uh, on the Hill. And so there's often one or more deputies who are kind of involved with helping to manage the bill comment pro uh, you know, uh, process. And so, you know, so there's some degree of specialization, but, you know, and sometimes if someone is, you know, is opined on certain issues, like whether it's religious liberty, whether it's the appointment clause or the like, you know, you may turn to that deputy for assistance in managing that. But, um, you know, it's kind of kind of the way like, like a law firm runs, I mean, you know, that specialization grows over time, but we kind of, you know, often expect everyone to sort of be able to, to participate and, you know, and the like. Right. Now, are there any particularly memorable moments uh, from your time in the OLC? Uh, I mean, I have, you know, <laughs> uh, there's, there's count. I mean, you know, every, every day is kind of, you know, was a new adventure, you know, at OLC. So, I mean, I think, you know, both, both in the, in the Bush administration and, and more recently in the Trump administration, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we, you know, seem to go from one, uh, you know, one legal issue to the next, sure. and, you know, or one crisis for the next. And so, um, you know, I don't know that I can choose among the, the memorable <laughs> moments, but, um, you know, it's, uh, there, there rarely, there rarely are issues, you know, or particularly contentious issues or otherwise that involve the Department of Justice in which, um, you know, outside of, you know, the actual, the prosecution function in which, you know, the Office of Legal Counsel is not involved in one way or the other. Now, I know you've received some criticism for some of the positions you took as uh, head of the OLC, including some of those related to the uh, Mueller report, not supporting obstruction charges against uh, then-President Trump. Some of those are relating to the decision not to release then-President Trump's tax returns, and some related to uh, immunity from congressional subpoena power for senior White House advisors, among some other issues. Uh, so my question is, how did you deal with those criticisms, and generally, how would you respond? Yeah, well, well, look, I mean, you can't uh, do a job uh, like OLC or like many uh, you know, jobs in public service if you have thin-skinned. I mean, 
you know, we live in heavily divided times and that's an understatement, <laughs> uh, you know, pe- people are going to, you know, it's disappointing that people often see what they want to see on the front end, depending upon who, you know, who's up or who's down, whose ox is gored rather than looking at sort of neutral legal principles and the like. And so, you know, every, every day I was at all I tried to do the best I could, uh, in providing, you know, my honest judgment of the law. Uh, and, you know, with a full recognition that, you know, some people would disagree or, you know, or not disagree. So, I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the, the work of the office that we had. And I think fair-minded observers uh, respect the work that we did. You know, the fact that, you know, in these times, some people are not going to be happy and some people are going to want to, you know, you know, sort of attack, uh, you know, ad hominem. Is, that's just, those are just the times we're in. Sure. Now, I did see in December of 2020, you received the Justice Department's highest award, the Edmund J. Randolph Award. Could you tell us a little bit about that award uh, and how that came about? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the Edmund J. Randolph Award uh, is awarded by the Attorney General, um, you know, and it is it is a you know a high honor for service to the department. And uh, Attorney General Barr, uh, you know, did. Uh, awarded to me, uh, you know, at the end of, you know, 2020, you know, for, you know, my service at OLC over those times. So obviously it was a great honor and tremendously flattering. Um, you know, in, in normal times, we might have had an award ceremony reflecting that, um, you know, the, with, given the pandemic and the like, sure. uh, you know, I, I have I have the award physically, uh, but, uh, you know, that's okay. Uh, you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I have great respect for Attorney General Barr, who did tremendous service himself to the department on multiple occasions. And, you know, it was privileged to work with him and, and obviously flattering, uh, you know, to, to receive the award. Excellent. Well, maybe that'll be a good excuse to uh, to host a party uh, once COVID fully uh, blows over. That's true. I'll, I'll, you know, around around time my kids are you know graduated college. <laughs> now, after leaving the OLC, uh, you returned to private practice at uh, Deckard LLP, uh, a law firm here in Washington D.C. How has private practice differed from your experience in the government? Well, I, I mean, there's pretty obvious differences on on the front end. I mean, you know, look, I mean, to to one degree, I mean, it's been. I, I I'm a big fan of Deckard. I had been here for eight years before I went into government, and you know, upon leaving government, I, I knew my time you know would end. I had no life tenure uh, in that position. Right. Uh, you know, I was excited to you know get back um, you know and work with my partners. I mean, you know, the practice of law is is itself kind of noble, and it's great working with clients and trying to help them resolve their problems. You know, there's certainly you know there's there's no there's no equivalent to being at the Department of Justice and dealing with you know six you know front page crises uh, you know a week and obviously uh, you know, <laughs> right. the practice of litigation is a slower practice and I've had some you know interesting things that I've dealt with since I've been here and you know hope you know, to continue but um, you know but that obviously is a difference and uh, the, the compensation schedule in the in the government versus private practice is also <laughs> materially different and so at least that's a that's a positive thing. And I'm assuming it's not higher in the government. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That is a safe assumption. Yes. Now, I gather you're an adjunct professor at the uh, Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a... What uh, what do you teach? So I, I taught a separation of powers seminar uh, with one of my former deputies, uh, Jen Mascot, who's Mm -hmm. a professor at the Scalia School of Law. And so... You know, it was it's an opportunity for us to continue to work on you know the kind of separation of powers issues uh, you know that OLC de- deals with you know on a day to day basis, and so in many cases we're dealing with you know the key Supreme Court cases in these areas as well, in, in often in discussing OLC opinions, some of which I have written, some of which others you know in the office had written, and you know looking at how the executive branch and Congress approach these questions of you know division of powers under our Constitution. 
Is there any advice for law students or young lawyers uh, who might be listening? Any advice you would have for them? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think, you know, no, no one knows exactly how their uh, career will go. Um, certainly, I've, you know, I've made decisions at various points in my career, um, you know, based on opportunities that I didn't expect to have. But what you can do is you can put yourself in a position of benefit when those opportunities arise, you know, and you do that by, uh, you know, working with, uh, you know, good, uh, you know, senior lawyers who are, who, you know, are invested in your career and looking to train you. You do it by impressing whoever you meet. And that's, you know, whether it's lawyers at your firm, whether it's adversaries, frankly, uh, in, in other cases, um, you know, it, with, by, you know, being a sort of a decent person and, you know, and an excellent lawyer. Um, and you put yourself in a position that, you know, when a phone call comes or when a job is open, you know, that people may look to you. Are there any uh, particular notable mentors uh, in your own career? I've, I mean, I've had countless, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, mentors in my career. I mean, at, at every stage, you know, the judges like I clerk for, Alex Kaczynski, uh, Anthony Kennedy. My first law firm, Ken Starr, was a great mentor to me. Steve Bradbury ran the Office of Legal Counsel. I was my partner for a number of years, and you know, and I've, you know, I've now worked for four attorneys general uh, over the course of DOJ. And you know, all, all these, you know, you can learn from all these folks, and so all these guys. It's been a great privilege for me in my career to be supported with and to learn from you know some really great mentors. Excellent. Now, finally, Steve, I have a question we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. Uh, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Uh, no pressure. Well, uh, yeah. No, well, look, I, I mean, you know, one of the things I often think about when I approach legal questions uh, is, you know, what would Justice Scalia do? Uh, maybe that sounds a uh, you know a little, a little trite, but I think you know Justice Scalia has had such a tremendous impact on the law and the way so many of us approach questions of text uh, and you know and, and, and the interpretation of the Constitution. And I had the privilege of knowing Justice Scalia. My wife actually clerked for him, and so I'm a Scalia clerk in law. Uh, Very nice. And then you know I had the privilege of, of running the Office of Legal Counsel, which, which he had done earlier in his career. And so uh, I suppose uh, if, uh, you know, if, 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 uh, uh, if I had to, uh, had to say, I think it'd be useful to have a conversation with Justice Scalia mm -hmm. about the issues of the day. And one of the benefits of having dinner with Justice Scalia is you could be sure you'd have uh, plenty of wine and, and, and good food uh, as well as good conversation. And so, um, you know, but uh, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's quite a few folks, quite a few justices on the list who I'd be happy to spend sure. time with. Well, Justice Scalia certainly sounds like a, an excellent choice to me. So, Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate it, and we'd love to have you back again in the future. Thank you. Happy to be here. GC, are you ready to get back into trivia this week? You betcha. Well, I thought with the nomination of Kentonji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, we could do a little KBJ trivia today so that our listeners can learn more about her before her confirmation hearings begin. All right, GC, let's start off with an easy question today. Where did KBJ go to law school? Ah, uh, easy indeed. Harvard. Double Harvard, actually. Yep, that's right. She went to law school there, and she did her undergrad there, too. Now, KBJ, if she's confirmed to the court, uh, will join many of the other justices who have attended either Yale or Harvard for law school. Uh, so as a bonus question, GC, who's the only current justice not to have attended one of those schools? That, of course, is Amy Coney Barrett, who went to and then taught at Notre Dame. That's right. She's a, a graduate of the Fighting Irish. Very good. You're off to a great start, so let's ratchet up the difficulty. 
As a law student, uh, Kintanji Brown Jackson wrote a note. Now, student notes in the Harvard Law Review are unsigned, but we know she wrote it because she disclosed it on her Senate questionnaire. So here's my question, GC, and this is a tough one. How many times has KBJ's student note been cited? Oh, that's very interesting. I don't know. But I've noticed a pattern with student notes where either they disappear into obscurity or they uh, they really take off. So uh, I'm going to guess that it, it that it's done well then in that case, since this is even a question. Well, as of today's show, it's been cited 44 times, according to Westlaw, and its title is Prevention versus Punishment Toward a Principal Distinction in the Restraint of Released Sex Offenders. And I suspect hmm. we may hear some interesting questions at our confirmation hearing about that note. Interesting. All right, GC. From 2013 to 2021, she served as a United States District Judge for the District of Columbia. During that time, how many trials did she preside over? Actually, I know this from some of my research into her, 12 trials. Yeah, that's exactly right. Excellent. Uh, She presided over nine jury trials and three bench trials. Now, I'll tell you, GC, that number stood out to me a little bit because, frankly, for the amount of time she was on the district court bench— Uh, That's not many trials at all, and I'm really surprised that it's that low. Now, maybe that says more about the types of cases coming before the D.C. District Court uh, more than anything else, uh, but 12 trials in that amount of time is a very low number. Yeah, I'm very surprised, too. My sense is that the D.C. District Court doesn't have an unusually low trial docket, Uh, so I'd be curious what other judges on that district are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we'll hear about that at uh, the confirmation hearing as well. All right, GC. Now, you got it right. Uh, KBJ was a graduate of Harvard for both undergrad and law school. So here's my question. What position does she currently hold with Harvard? She is on the board of overseers. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well done. Uh, You know, this leads to an interesting question, GC of whether she would have to recuse herself from the upcoming affirmative action case involving Harvard's admissions policies that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. You know, my thought is, even if she were to resign from the board now, she would still have been a part of the board when those policies were in place. So I suspect, again, this may be something we hear about at her confirmation hearings. Very interesting. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.